Only on Sports Radio 92.7 FM WFNZ. Straight fire. This is the Wesson Walker Show. Even the crowd knows what's coming next. It's Wesson Walker on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. We appreciate you joining us from 12 to 3 p.m. And you can text us via the Garage Door Guru text line 704-570-9610. That's how you can get involved in the show. And we're going to be talking about a Charlotte Hornets victory. Dare I say winning streak? Can we say winning streak if you only win two? I mean, maybe we have some contextual things to put in place with the Charlotte Hornets, given the fact that they've only really won two in a row. Is it okay if we call it a winning streak, Wes? Uh, yeah, we can. I, I would probably put it back-to-back games. I'd just say they won back-to-back. Three, to me, is a streak. I think you're right about that, but I also think that we have different rules in place for the Charlotte Hornets this year. <laughs> because it was funny at the beginning of the season, Willie P made a bet with Sam Farber that if the Hornets went on a five-game winning streak then Willie P would have to dye his hair teal and we could have made it a three game winning streak and mm. Willie P still would have been safe. Yeah. And so they haven't even come close to that. I'm going to say it's a streak. They beat the Spurs last night, 120 to 110. They cover and it was a close game for a while, but then they cover the seven point favorites attached to their name coming into this one. And so they win 120 to 110 with LaMelo ball going for a triple double how about the block party they hosted last night with Mark Williams protecting the paint like no other? Yes. Nick Richards began the season with an awesome performance against San Antonio, game one. And now here we are, game 60, <laughs> and Nick Richards actually has a pretty nice outing. Let's talk all about it. The bus driver's back in. Let's get off the bus. We look good getting off the bus. I got something to say. Damn! There are times that I'm so unsure of myself, despite saying what I think are pretty benign statements, and it's because you have some weird facial expressions, Wes. You just raised your eyebrow when I said something at the end of that statement. Was it because of anything I said, or was it because of what you have in front of your computer right now? No, I was trying to figure out the smell of uh, Fitty's food. It smelled really good, but then I saw when he brought it in, it looked like soup, so I was like... What is that? I think that is a famous recipe from his mama, as he calls it. Oh, really? Yep, a uh, a soup recipe, and that's what he came in with. So I didn't know if you were talking the facial. I thought I said something that you had disagreed with. I was like, no, Man, no, just a couple games from Nick Richards. That's what I was trying to bring up. That was <laughs> no, it. Not at all. Not at all. So Nick Richards, he was involved in the block party last night. He had five off of the bench. Mark Williams had four and really came on strong at the end of this game. And Lamelo, as I mentioned, had that triple double, finishing with twenty eight points. He had 10 assists. He had 12 rebounds. Are the kids all right, Wes? They doing okay the rest of the season despite not having Jalen, no Mason? It's not like they're going to get to the play-in tournament. But do you actually feel like, hey, I I should tune in to this Hornets team to watch some of these guys play because you have LaMelo, because Mark could be a future cornerstone. And even Bryce McGowan's gave you a nice first half of this. Well, yes, as we said that, uh, you know, to see Nick – and, um, oh, Lord, I'm way off here. Okay, to see Mark Williams and LaMelo, that's what you want to tune in to see with the Charlotte Hornets. And as long as those two are playing well, they're worth watching for sure. You're going to get the excitement from LaMelo. You're going to get the passes. You're going to get nice stat lines like you got last night. And then you want to see, is Mark Williams the guy? That's what you're looking for down the stretch. 
DJ Skinner said that it has to be a back-to-back. We're not going to really call it a winning streak, so that's fine. 704 did say, I know everyone wants Victor, but the Hornets got Scoot Henderson, if that is the case, and they had LaMelo in the backcourt. That could be a lot of fun to watch. And I think with the Hornets winning a couple of games in a row, it has got the fan base talking just a little bit about, do you want to see this, or would you rather see them lose as much as possible? And I saw Nada, who is a friend of the show, a friend of mine, he put out there on Twitter, look, one thing I've learned from this experience, again, the two-game quote-unquote winning streak, is that I will take the good vibes, and I will take at least some semblance of a competitive culture and sacrifice the one and a half percent that comes with finishing as the fourth worst team in the NBA. Do you abide by that or would you rather sacrifice what could be a culture problem? Maybe depending on how much weight you put in that for that extra one and a half percent to get the number one. overall. No, I think you need to do whatever you can to be able to uh, get up there and get Wimby. So no, I'm not for the wins. You want all the losses. Is there anything to that culture stuff, though? Because I don't want to just be a franchise that is okay with losing all the time. No, I mean, the players, they can get mad and the the coach and all that, and he can cuss people out and say what he wants to say. But just from a fan perspective, you know, you want them to continue to take L's, competitive L's. Moral victory. Okay. Just asking. I didn't know if there was a, a little bit of the culture thing that you might be losing there. But... Jake Fisher mentioned yesterday that the Hornets do have a lot of work to do, even with LaMelo on their roster. And he did have a couple of interesting comments. You can find that soundbite on our Twitter handle, at Wes and Walker. I'll spell it this time, W-E-S-A-N-D-W-A-L-K-E-R. You can find us on Twitter there. And here's Jake Fisher kind of talking about how LaMelo needs to establish himself as a winning player. LaMelo Ball is not even like a surefire candidate to be a cornerstone of a winning franchise right now. We've seen him get to the playing tournament, and the all-star numbers were fantastic a year ago. But at this juncture, like if you take true serum and really evaluate yourself, I don't think the Hornets can truly believe that they've got the bedrock of a perennial playoff contender in the works right now. Well, I mean... It's hard for me to dissect that comment Mm -hmm. because I don't think there's any problem in saying that you're not for sure that you have LaMelo as this superstar for this team. But at the the end, he talked about how you're not sure that you have a playoff contender. Was he speaking about LaMelo just specifically there or was he speaking about the Hornets as a whole because I think he was he's saying right that, about the Hornets. Yeah, I think he, yeah, I think he was saying that you know when he used the bedrock comment, I think he was saying that just do you have requisite pieces that you feel like you can build a strong foundation on to get there? And I think he was saying that the Hornets do not. Well, I would agree with that. I just don't think LaMelo is a part of that problem, right? I think LaMelo can be a part of the solution. According to what he said, it sounded like he might be a, at least a portion. Yeah, but I don't agree with it, right? Right. That, that's the that's the debate. Yeah, Jake Fisher can think that, and that's fine. Like, I mean, you can have this uncertainty about him not being a potential superstar. We still have those questions. I, I was asked on Charlotte Sports Live a couple months back, do you think LaMelo can be the one? A on a championship winning team. And I don't know if I view LaMelo as that guy. I think he could be a 1B, and I think he could be absolutely an amazing second player, especially with the way that he's able to connect with everyone else. But you're talking about Kevin Durant, LeBron James, yeah. Steph Curry. Those and that's guys what I'm saying. 1B is putting it nice. Let's just say what it is, a 2. Do you, so you don't think he could be that either, No, I'm right? just like, saying, like, a, the 1A, 1B is a 2. If, if, if I was to think of a 1A, 1B situation, I think, like, Kyrie and KD, as far as, like, two 
super superstars, but I mean, let's just call it what it is. Is he a two? Yeah, I mean, I think if you talk about Lamelo, which there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's not. But that's the thing, I guess, with Jake Fisher. So what? What do you think about Jake Fisher's comments and how you? I just agree thought it disagree? was interesting because we really haven't had anybody come on here and say that Lamelo is not the franchise. Like everybody that comes on, they're like, he's the guy, he's the franchise, and now you build from there. And Jake was like, eh, I'm not even sure if I'd give him that uh, just yet. Now, as far as what I think about that, you know, I've had my questions about as far as just competitive fire, wanting to win at all costs, not trying to make friends necessarily in order to do that. And I think the jury is still out on some of that. The article kind of quelled some of that. Kelly Ecos of the Athletic. Kelly Ecos, yeah, that kind of quelled a little bit of that. But, you know, next season I think will be huge for him as far as his perception. Because, you know, are you a guy like Bradley Beal where you're just willing to stay where you're at and lose and get the bag? You know what I'm saying? Or do you are you a guy that's going to be a SOB because y'all are not winning? So I think, yeah, you're talking about with him leaving Charlotte now? Or I'm just to saying, no, just, just, environment? just him being the guy that, like I said, we're going to win or we're going to scrap. Like one of those type of guys, like I'm like I'm sick of this. We're going to win. And he's willing his team to victory because of the competitive fire that he's inserting through that team that he demands that from them. And that article did say that they felt that way about him, that he does demand the best from his teammates and is on them um, pretty tough. So that, that that's really the thing I'm looking for for me. For him to go to the next level, and I think he will exhibit some of that too by being better on defense, which is something that we talked about. He needs to be better at, on defense, but offensively, I think he's a really special player too. Like, here's the thing: ultimately, it comes down to putting him in an environment where he's able to take a team to the playoffs. Because this is not a team this year that was going to be able to do that. Hell, Lamelo himself was injured a couple of times already this year after having some bad ankle luck, right? And so you don't have that. Terry Rozier didn't play last night, so you didn't even have him last night. You haven't had Gordon a large part of the season. And the guy is 21 years old. But I think he had that last year. You're talking about, well, and they finished with over 40 wins. I mean, right, tr- but they went to the plan. No, they yeah. got smashed. So at, at 20 years old, I guess. So what, what are you trying to say? You keep it 100 with me because I'm saying what A, what B. I'm just keep saying it he, had it, he had it last year, and I thought that was something that was missing. I think that defense also is a sign of you being all in to win at all costs. And so, you know, you look at, uh, what was the year Atlanta went to the playoffs? That was 2021, 22 season when they went and Trey Young went off like that. You're talking about in the, oh, you're talking, yes, it was a couple years ago, whatever it was. Yeah, now Trey Young is no defensive stalwart, but just the fact of how he willed that team that, you know, they had good players, they had good talent around him, but he was just a complete monster in those playoffs. And I think that's the next thing we want to see from them. Like, cause for me to be able to say he's a, even if you want to call him a one B, like you got to see some big games where he just goes off and dominates basketball games. And we saw Trey Young do that in their playoff run, even though it hasn't been that great since then, but he does have that to his name. He does. That he was a monster in the playoffs. Yeah. He, he was a monster in that playoff run. He also himself, people have called him the worst defender in the league True. because of lack of care and because he's tiny. True. And so all of that adds up to Trey Young, not being the guy. And now this year you have all these locker room problems with another 
a different coach now, right? Lloyd Wright at first, and uh, now you have, no, not Lloyd Wright, Lloyd Pierce, excuse me. And then you're talking about Nate McMillan. But either way, just with LaMelo here, I think it's entirely too early to, to write him off because he's 21 years old. And look, yeah, the guy already made an all-star team. Here's, here's the last thing I'll say about LaMelo. It was interesting to me at the beginning of his career, rookie season, number one year in the league, Everybody, Brian Windhorst, National NBA pundits, us in Charlotte, we're talking about not how special Lamella was, but how he affected winning. Because when you're a rookie, you actually make a lot of mistakes and you're yeah. a detriment to your team more often than not. And that was not what Lamella was right on to stepping onto the basketball court. He had a debut and he scored zero points. Okay, Lamella played like maybe 15 minutes, didn't play that much in the first game. And then the second game, he actually went off for like 15. And then that whole year, won Rookie of the Month every single month, except for the months that he got hurt. And then that was either relinquished to Tyrese Halliburton or Anthony Edwards. I forget who would end up winning in that rookie class. But the guy affected winning his first year. Second year, they went over 40 games, and he's turning 20 years old that same season. He turns 21 here. The team is in absolute shambles, okay? You don't have Miles Bridges. You don't have Gordon. We can do the whole thing you've heard us say pretty much every day. So I think this year to use it as any sort of indictment on LaMelo, I think it's completely false. I don't think you can, I don't think you can use any of this as an indictment on LaMelo this season. Yeah, That's I what agree I'll with that. Yeah. That's why I said next year is going to be a, a big year. There's no doubt. Absolutely. That'll be his fourth season. There's going to be no doubt about that being a huge year for what I still will say is the franchise player here in the city of Charlotte. All right, that'll do it. We have some more Jake Fisher audio. Maybe I we will can say it too. Bring that that you that he's a franchise guy is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. So franchise guy. We both agree. Maybe we can get to that a little bit later on. Tony Pauline. Does he think Carolina is going to draft their franchise guy at the quarterback position? He's going to join us. Draft expert. He's coming up next on the Wesson Walker Show, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Wesson Walker on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. We are already getting hype for the NFL draft. Not all that far away. And there are plenty of questions surrounding the Carolina Panthers. Who better to talk about all of it than Tony Pauline, the PFN NFL draft expert. And you can find him on Twitter, by the way, at Tony Pauline. Tony, we've been talking a lot about mock drafts. I just have to ask you, what is your opinion of all of the mock drafts, the 1.0s, the 17 point threes are you uh, a, a connoisseur of all of the mock drafts that infiltrate our social media timelines i hate them <laughs> i mean, I, mean uh, I know people love them and they bring in a lot of views but I, I basically think they're a waste of time right now because there's so much left in the scouting process and and i know you know they're consumed at a high rate but they're absolutely meaningless. Take the mock drafts now and see what actually happens three months from now. The problem Two is, from now, I should say. No, you're good. The problem is, we need the content, though, Tony. And so we yeah. need to talk about That's exactly it. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> we need to talk about it. I did want to ask you this, though, because there's a lot of movement uh, in a lot of these mock drafts. And honestly, even with Jim Ursay coming out and saying, you know, hey, I'm keeping an eye on that Alabama QB, we even have NFL owners themselves talking about the possibility of the top of the draft having some movement via trade do you expect to see a lot of trades at number one overall at number three with some of the teams that might not choose a quarterback at the top how much movement do you think we'll see within the first 10 picks or so 
I don't think there's going to be a lot. I, I mean, there's no franchise-type quarterback at the top. But Jim Mercy making comments like that is not a good sign for her Colt fans. You know, you want your football people to run the business, not the uh, not the owners. But I don't. You know, it's. Bryce Young is a is a phenomenal college quarterback. I, I mean, he's got it going on between the ears, but he's small. He doesn't have a big arm. Uh, you, you know, C.J. Stroud has got that big arm. He's a phenomenal vertical passer. But both of those guys have holes in their games. I mean, Young, you don't know how he's going to hold up. C.J. Stroud really had two out, outstanding games and needs a lot of coaching and needs a lot of development. So I don't see any teams clamoring to move up to get either of those players. It's Tony Pauline on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. And so with Carolina being in the QB mix, Tony, do you think it would be wise for Carolina to stay at nine and then possibly select a QB? Or are you just saying, no, Carolina, stay at nine and then draft best player available because you just don't see it with these passers? I think it's the latter. Uh, You know, I I think, you know, it's a long haul for Carolina. They need a lot of pieces. And, you know, I know football is a here and now game, but, you know, if you miss with the ninth pick on a quarterback, you, you, you almost go back to square one. And I think with Frank Reich, you know, the, new, the coach there, he's got some time. He doesn't need to rush things. I, I think Carolina would be better, you know, seeing who's there at nine, maybe a cornerback, maybe if a top-edge rusher happens to fall on their laps, you come back in round two, maybe you get a quarterback like Hendon Hooker of uh, Tennessee, who's a phenomenal uh, talent He's just got a major injury, which means he's going to have to sit on the sidelines next year, which may not be a bad thing, you know, because you don't want to force him into the action. You don't want to force any quarterback in the action. Getting a quarterback like Aiden O'Connell in round, in round three, I think there will be some good quarterbacks that the Panthers can get on day two that Frank where I could work with that they could develop that they don't really have to pull the gun in and take a guy like I'm seeing Anthony Richardson, who has got so many question marks. Uh, I mean, so much downside risk. It's such a roll of the dice with the pick. Uh, I, I think it'd be it's just foolish to do that. Tony, West Bryan here, and coming off of that question, who would be the top three non-quarterbacks that you think would be great for the Panthers at nine? Well, I, I, top three non-quarterbacks, I think you've got to look at the cornerbacks. You know, maybe Joe, uh, Joey Porter happens to be my ninth-rated player on my board. Uh, the cornerback from Penn State, he's big, he's physical, he's, he's athletic, he's got great bloodlines, and he's shown, shown the ability to shut down opponents. A lot of people like Devin Witherspoon of Illinois. I want to see how fast he runs uh, because he, he's, he's probably the most polished corner in this year's class, but there are some concerns and there are some uh, questions about his deep speed. You know, if you're looking for a pass rusher, Let's see what happens with Tyree Wilson of Texas Tech. Uh, that, that has got to be a consideration if he falls there. Or, uh, you, you know, Miles Murphy, if he's able to, if there is a run on quarterbacks early on and Miles Murphy happens to fall tonight, I think that's also something that's got to be in consideration. All right, and then one quarterback that uh, you did not address that around here, they said that David Tepper was enamored with Will Levis, but uh, us here on the show, not so much, and wanted to know your opinions uh, on Will Levis. What do you see when you watch him, and is he worthy of some of the praise that he's getting because he's seen as going as high as number two? Yeah, I, I would be shocked if Will Levis goes number two. I mean, Will Levis has got great physical skills. He's a, he's a big a physical pocket passer with mobility. He can get the ball downfield with a flick of his wrist. Uh, I mean, he is a power vertical passer, but he needs a lot of work on his game. He stares down the primary target. He's, his reads go hot and cold. 
You know, he struggles layering the ball at the different levels. I, I think Will Levis, if he wanted to be a top 10 pick, should have shown up at the Senior Bowl, should have shown up at the Shrine game because those games are moneymakers, are kingmakers at, at the quarterback position as, as we've seen in the past, especially with the Atlanta Falcons coaching one of the teams in the Shrine game. I think he made a major mistake. Listen, the perception of Will Levis outside the scouting community is completely different from what teams say. Yeah, you know, you may be enamored with Will Levis's arm strength, but this guy is going to need a, a lot of work between the ears as well as uh, work on throwing NFL-type passes. And then I wanted to ask you about a, a couple of wide receivers. That could be something the Panthers could look at as well. Maybe not so much in the first round, but uh, a couple of guys, one maybe uh, known around him, one not so much. But uh, Jordan Addison from Pitt, how is it that he was so productive one of Belitnikov two years ago? He's now seen as maybe the third or fourth best receiver in this draft. And then Josh Downs from North Carolina, I wanted to know what you thought about him as well. Yeah, I think you mean Jordan Addison of USC. He was USC, really yeah, yeah, Pitt, but he was but, at Pitt, yeah. Yeah, you know, he had a few injuries last year. He's a big, he's a, a taller, slimmer guy, doesn't have the great stoutness. But, I, I mean, he fits what the NFL wants today. In the past, everybody wanted that six foot four, 212-pound receiver. Now you want the guy that can separate through routes, and that's what Jordan Addison does. He runs great routes, and he's able to separate through his routes, and he catches the ball very well. Uh, I think, you know, you mentioned, well, why is he the third or fourth-rated receiver? He's actually number four on my board. I think that's more a symptom of, there's no outstanding receiver in this year's draft. There's no guy that's head and shoulders. They all have issues with their games. Josh Downs is a great receiver. He's a terrific vertical threat. I, I mean, he's a guy that catches the underneath pass, and you know he'll take it downfield, and he competes to come away with, with, the, uh, con- with the tough grab. Well, with Josh Downs is, what are his true measurements? I mean, is he going to be five foot ten? Is he going to be 180 pounds? And if he is five foot ten, 180 pounds, how fast is he going to run? So with Josh Downs, I'm kind of contradicting what I said earlier, but you know, it is more of a size issue. How is he going to hold up? Is it going to be a situation where you're going to have to put him in the slot, keep him off of press coverage? Tony Pauline joining us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline, talking about the NFL draft, and let's just stick with the pass catchers here, Tony. A lot of people went tight end. It's been a position of need for Carolina after Greg Olson left for Seattle. You tried with Tommy Tremble. It just hasn't worked out, at least as of yet. Same with Ian Thomas. Michael Mayer is somebody a lot of people like. Would he be a reach at number nine? Would you rather have tight end value later on in the draft, or would you like that selection if Carolina went that way? Yeah, I think in this day and age, Michael Mayer is a massive reach in the top 12. If it was 20, 25 years ago, maybe Michael Mayer is a top 15 pick. He's sort of a throwback. He's not the move tight end, stretch the field guy at the position that teams want. He's more of a guy who is a real good blocker and a real good pass catcher within 12 yards. He's not going to split the seam with his speed. He'll get down the field, and he'll get up in a crowd and come away with the ball, but he's not, he's not the fleet-footed guy. I think, you know, if they're looking for tight end, they're probably in a good position in day two. If a Luke Musgrave from Oregon State falls to them at the top of round two, a lot of people think Musgrave, including myself, could go first round. That's a guy they got to consider. Tucker Kraft of South Dakota State really doesn't get a lot of mention. Remember his name at combine time. He's a guy who could go late first round, early second round, plays the, plays the tight end position like a receiver. 
Sam Laporta of Iowa, just a very underrated tight end, a complete player at the position, uh, catches the ball extremely well, gives effort blocking, probably should be in the game consideration for the late first round uh, conversation, but he's not going to be. I do think that the Panthers can come away in day two with a real good tight end prospect. Well, and Tony, when we talk about quarterbacks, it seems like the last couple of years, people are saying, well, wait for the next year. That's when you really have a a top end quarterback class. And now I feel like we're saying that again, Drake may Caleb Williams next season. Is that where that scenario actually hits true? Where do those QB prospects rank among some of the other top QB prospects? of the last well, decade or so. Yeah, it's not only that. I mean, you got to look at the guys who uh, basically went back for another year that were expected to uh, enter the draft, whether it be Bo Nix of uh, Oregon, whether it be Jaden Daniels of LSU. I mean, there are a ton of players at the quarterback position. You mentioned the, the two names that everyone's talking about. Well, in order to get one of those two guys, you're going to have to be have one of the first two selections of the draft. But when you look at, you know, the Grayson McCall, the Bo Nix, as I said, Ben Bryan of Cincinnati, there are going to be a lot of seasoned quarterbacks, guys who are going back for second senior uh, seasons, as allowed by the NCAA, uh, who are going to be available. So next year is really going to be a deep quarterback draft. So I, I, would, I would agree with that, but it's not necessarily those top two guys that you mentioned. Because in order to get those top two guys, you're only going to win two or three games in, in 2022. Overall, it's going to be a real deep quarterback draft in 2024. Tony, with the Panthers going to a 3-4 more than likely under Ezra Evero, they're going to need some big bodies on that defensive line. And a couple of guys right down the road at Clemson that I wanted to ask you about. For one, Brian Bercy. This was a guy who I thought coming out of high school was going to be the second coming of J.J. Watt. I see he's starting to slip down boards. And I kind of felt his career at Clemson, it just was very unfulfilling for me. So what do you see when you see him and then also uh, K.J. Henry uh, as well? You know, I think you got to give Brise a, a pass for the 2022 season. I thought he was phenomenal in 2021. Highly rated guy. Comes back in 2022. Obviously, the situation with his young sister dying of cancer. He has the kidney infection, so he never really got it going. I still think he's top 12 talent. I still think he's a terrific athlete. He's got to learn to bend his knees and play with leverage. He gets a little bit tall on his stance, which is going to be a killer at the next level. Uh, but I still have a lot of hope for him. I'm going to give him a pass considering everything that he went uh, through last year. K.J. Henry is a guy who I absolutely love. I think he is ridiculously underrated. He is, Like you said, you know, if you're going to a 3-4, K.J. Henry at 6'4", 247 pounds, he's the perfect guy to stand over tackle, occasionally come out of a, out of a three-point stance. He can rush the passer up the field. He can change direction and pursue running plays. You can use him off the line on occasion if you need to. Uh, not the biggest guy in the world, but he plays big football. I think a lot of his draft status will 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 basically be determined by how fast he runs and how he tests at the combine. I like Henry a lot. I have him as, I've had liked him a lot for the past couple of years. Uh, I've had him right now as a fifth round pick. If he runs well, he's going to go much earlier. And then also in that 3-4, I feel like that we, we've talked about on this show that they will more than likely need a big space-clogging nose guard to go in the middle of that defense. Are there some prospects that you feel like that would fit that bill for the Panthers? 
Yeah, second round, maybe Maisie Smith of Michigan, who's going to tear up the combine. You know, people talked about Aiden Hutchinson last year uh, from Michigan, Mike Morris this year. Well, a lot of that, those guys were able to do the things that they did because Maisie Smith was occupying the gaps and taking up blockers in the middle of the line. You look in third round, Siaka Ika of Baylor, six foot four, three hundred fifty-five pounds. Here's a guy who plays the run well. He's quick, he's smart, and he is impossible, impossible to move off the line of scrimmage. He plays to a 355-pounder. If you're looking day three, and sometimes you can get good nose tackle types out of day three, Gerard Clark from Coastal Carolina, who, when he's on his game, he is unstoppable. He just needs more consistency. That's great stuff from Tony Pauline, the NFL draft expert for PFN, joining us on the Body Works Plus guest hotline. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter, by the way, at Tony Pauline. Tony, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks again. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Good stuff there. Talking about the quarterback class, not only this year, but how deep it is next year. Not a fan of tight end in the first round, possibly going with cornerback or edge at number nine. I want to recap some of those comments maybe a little bit later on in the show. And uh, Hendon Hooker, big fan of him, possibly yes. coming back to Hendon Hooker in the second round. I know a lot of people would like that. I know one Kyle Bailey would be a fan of that as well. We've talked about that situation too. So should be a lot of fun to discuss all of the different possibilities Possibilities going in to the NFL draft. 704-570-9610. We'll want your thoughts and comments about this as well. Just text us via the Garage Door Guru text line. 704-570-9610. From Tony Pauline to Josh Fitty Marlowe, Low Country, what's your first flash of the day? <laughs> oh, Walker. The Boston Celtics announced earlier this morning that interim head coach Joe Mazzula has officially been named the team's head coach replacing the uh, suspended then fired Ime Udoka, who also received a contract extension last year after taking the Celtics to the finals. Uh, Missoula is 34, was named the team's interim head coach back in September and has led the Celtics to an NBA best 42 and 17 record entering this weekend's All-Star break, where he'll be coaching team Giannis in the All-Star game. What have you made of the job he's done? I know he's got two All-Stars, but Every opportunity for that team to come apart, and they're arguably better than they were this time a year ago. Okay, a couple things here. One, I think he's done a great job. You have to give the guy credit. And a lot of people expected good things from Joe Missoula. He was highly regarded within that system, even when Ime Udoka left. And so it makes all the sense in the world. The second thing is, did you say he was 34 years old, Fiddy? Was that the age that you put on him? Yeah, 34, so four years older than you. Yes. Five this, years less than Wes Bryant. Th this, is, this is the weird thing for me. Maybe I'm in a territory by myself, me being about five years older than you, close to it, and being five years about younger than you, close to it, Wes. Yeah. Maybe I'm in a specific territory. It is. Th this is the last stage of how old I am in sports, comparing it to players that get drafted when I was in college. Like, wait, now I'm not looking up to these guys as much because – I'm their age. I'm older than some of the players drafted. That hit about the Bismack Biombo MKG range, <laughs> and now I'm I'm about to be the same age as some of these younger coaches. It hit me too yesterday with Parks Frazier becoming the passing game coordinator at 31 for Carolina. Yeah, starting to hit me, Wes. Did that hit you when you started to have coaches become your age as well in the NFL or any different kind of league like that? No, because they don't look better than me. So it's all about looks for you. Yeah. Okay. You know, some of those guys are 30 and they look like they're 45. But not you. You look how, 30 how something and I look like I'm 25. Yeah. How old is Walker Christine. look? Yeah, how do I look? <laughs> are you going to tell? He, he's going to uh, say I look 22 and I should be no, playing Walker basketball for Duke. No, Walker does look late 20s. 
especially when he wears his hat backwards. Hat backwards might shave off a couple of years, about 27. So you're, you're saying if I don't have a hat on, I'm about 30. And no, if about I, 29. The thing is, you know what <laughs> so helps one me? one year left. You know what? <laughs> yeah, hey, that matters specific. to some people. The thing that helps me, though, is when I actually grow out the goatee just a little bit. Yeah. I think subconsciously it makes me a little bit older. But if I don't have that, I mean, people talk about me like I'm a baby face. Dude! What's up, bro? <laughs> We're doing Weston Walker, man. I think that, um... How old do I look? Well... <laughs> with the beard. Yeah. Wow. With the neck beard. Even with the beard. You look like when somebody takes their kid and they draw the beard on them. Let's <laughs> see. What is that? Is the, uh... What's the willy thing that you would draw on with the magnet? Yeah. You, remember the, you know what I'm talking about? I do. The silly willy? I remember that. Am I, I making so. that up? I don't. I don't know. Did but you have I anything th- to say about his flash? I did. Okay. I was going to say that, uh... <laughs> I think it's interesting. I mean, I think the Celtics made a lot of nice additions in the offseason to tweak an NBA Finals roster. Am I going to give this guy all the credit in the world for what he did? I mean, he's holding down the fort. You know what I'm saying? And and I think he is doing a good job with them. But the Celtics, really, when you look at their DNA, they're still pretty much the same team. Great on defense. Great on offense. Tatum and those guys are sharing the ball a little bit more than what they did before. Uh, you know, they added Malcolm Brogdon in the crew, but like I said, he's just holding the ship steady. So, I mean, he's doing a good job, and, you know, I, I don't know how great of a coach he really is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Willie Willie, by the way. Somebody, yes, thank you. 704 number. I said Our silly call Willie. always come through for don't, the win. Don't say anything, Fitty. Don't. Why? Don't. It's, it's there to be all right, said. All right, you have three seconds, and then we can go to break after that. Go. I was going to say, that's what Willie calls his Willie. Okay, thank you for that. It's Weston Walker, Campus Corner coming up next. Let's go to break. Weston Walker Show is back. Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Hit us up on the Garage Door Guru text line, 704-570-9610. Hit us up on Twitter, Weston Walker, W-E-S-A-N-D-W-A-L-K-E-R. Hit that follow button, man. Let's get to 1,000, man. I don't know what you guys are doing out there. Hit that follow button. All right. We're in the campus corner. Cue up the music, please. Joshua Marlowe. And uh, former North Carolina head coach Matt Doherty had a lot to say about the state of the Tar Heels. So let's go ahead and get into the sound, man. Let's play them. So I I think that uh, my biggest thing, you know, Hubert's going to continue to grow and evolve. He's too smart for that, too good of a guy. And I think he's got great assistant coaches in Pat Sullivan, Jeff Lebo, uh, Sean May, Brad Frederick. Uh, Jack Emanuel, that, you know, they've got to improve their schemes, their system, defensively and offensively to, like, when I look at their offense, what's their identity? I don't know what their identity is. You know, I think you have to have an identity. Defensively, what's your identity? I don't know what your identity is. Like, they've given up way too many transition buckets against Wake Forest and Miami. And you can't do that. Damn right. So, what did. is your de- identity defensively? You're damn right. They gave up transition buckets to the Deeks. But, <laughs> but no. What do we think about what he had to say um, about them? And 
he made good points. I mean, he made points that we brought up, but what do you think about it coming from the mouth of one Matt Doherty? I used to think identity was overstated. That was a while back, but at the end of the day, every team, basketball or football, you need to find something you can fall back on and rely on and say, this is the way that we can be productive. In North Carolina, I honestly think they have one, and I just don't think they go to it. <laughs> I think they have one with Armando Baycott down low, who is a player of the year candidate when everybody is feeding him, and then when you only have six field goal attempts, you start to get away from stuff that you actually do really well. Caleb Love, he's a fun basketball player when he's hitting shots. We know what the story is about him. There's got to be some kind of give and take where you don't have to have these awful shot selections from him to where you're missing and you go five of 17 that actively hurts your basketball squad. RJ Davis, he's a guy that I believe in quite a bit when he finds his mid-range game, right? He, you know, dribbles past his guy, lets the shot flow right before you actually have the trees come out and try to contest those shots. And so I like some of those games, but ultimately I just don't think they're running their offense enough through Armando Baycott. I think that should be the identity. And I think some of that should be on Hubert Davis for not forcing them to go to that enough. And a lot of that obviously has to rely on the, on the backcourt. Um, with especially, you know, Caleb Love just continues to shoot. It's just, it's been a real problem. I thought he'd be better this year. Well, I think one problem with that philosophy, though, is the fact that, for one, you know, I already said I don't think Armando Baycott has many post moves. He doesn't have a 15 to 17-footer that he can shoot on a regular basis as well to take his game to the next level. And so I feel like that when you do get it down in the post to him, if you double him, they don't shoot it consistently enough from three to really make that a problem. Armando doesn't have the spacing as well to operate nor, like I said, does he have multiple post moves like that to really get his buckets down there. So I feel like that offense is at its best when they're shooting threes, and this is not a good three-point shooting team. And so, like I said, R.J. Davis, to me, he doesn't play aggressive enough on a regular basis. He picks and chooses which games he wants to really come out and be a problem. And it's like if he hits his first couple of shots, then he'll get aggressive. And I feel like he, he and Caleb Love need to be aggressive from the onset of the game. But Caleb needs to be judicious in his shot selection, though, if that makes sense. So he can be aggressive, but he just needs to make sure that he's taking good shots. And especially as athletic as he is, he needs to get to the basket more, get to the free throw line also to get his game going. So I think that's kind of the flaw with Carolina. And I think Brady Manning that you guys have been talking about all season, he was the guy that spaced the floor for them. He was the guy they could count on and hit that shot, that three-point shot consistently. Well, and here's the problem, too. I mean, just kind of dissecting Caleb Love's game a little bit more so. The overall field goal percentage, it has gone up every single season. And the two-point percentage, that's up at 46%. That's actually a monster number compared to what it was the previous year at 38, okay? So yeah. the fact that you're actually finishing 46, that's fantastic. The problem is, now the shooting from the outside that's gone way down on one more attempt per game than what he had last year and I wonder how much that is because of shot selection how much of that is just because sometimes shooting woes will show up because you're just talking about a pretty inconsistent shot if you shoot 36% from three that means you're actually pretty good right and so if the sample size piles up enough to where you're just throwing up big time Hail Marys and it doesn't go in, yeah, you're actively hurting. And so it's the offense and the defense is, as well as what Matt Doherty mentioned. But you're hoping that Caleb Love can find that end-of-year magic he did last year to try to get things going. And then Matt Doherty spilled the tea and said that Mike Bray currently at Notre Dame may be leaving for Georgetown. Cue it up. I communicate with Mike a little bit. Um, he's been very gracious to me. Took over for me 20-something years ago at Notre Dame. And I've gone back a couple times. 
But he always had his eye on Georgetown. And he's from D.C., worked at DeMatha for legendary Morgan Wooten, then coached at at, at, uh, at Duke under, under Coach K. And so he always had his eye on that job. And, you know, it looks like this probably be Patrick Ewing's last year. So it makes sense because, quite frankly, if you look at the pool, the talent pool in terms of coaching, not a lot of depth. I think that that would be a great move for Mike Bray to go to uh, Notre Dame. I feel like he, I mean, not to go to Notre Dame, to go to Georgetown. I feel like he's one of the more underrated coaches in the country, I guess I could say. I mean, he's taken some, he's had some talented Notre Dame teams for sure, but especially last season, he was able to really get the most uh, out of that team. I like Bray a lot personally as well. Patrick Ewing, we know it's been abysmal there, and I think college basketball as a whole is better when Georgetown is good. I'd love to see them come back uh, to the forefront of things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I wish it worked out for Patrick Ewing. Somebody that we got to know here in Charlotte was on Steve Clifford's uh, coaching staff for quite a while, and a lot of people wanted him to be a head coach. I think Georgetown has given him quite a bit of time to try to figure it out and just hasn't worked, so I hate that it hasn't worked for Patrick Ewing. Here's the interesting thing about Mike Bray, because I actually agree with you on all of that. I think he'd be a good coaching candidate for Georgetown to go after, but it's been a while since the Fighting Irish have actually had some basketball success. I mean, you are talking about a team that has not made the tournament except for one time in 2021-2022, but before that, you're talking about four previous stints, Mm -hmm. and then you had the pandemic, of course, era of college basketball. I don't know if they would have made it in 2019-2020 at 20-12 and overall. If so, it would have been dicey. 14-19 and in 2018, 10-16 this year when everybody thought they were going to be good. I like him as a coach. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a great hire for Georgetown. But honestly, Mike Bray is not someone that has had all of this success here no recently like he did earlier in the 2010. Yeah, I think though with some of the talent that he was able to get at Notre Dame, and you've heard a lot yeah. about the stringent academics and how hard it is to get top cal- caliber athletes there. I think Georgetown is still a great academic institution as well, but I think he may be able to get a little bit better player in there on a more consistent basis. So we'll see, though. But that was a good little uh, cut right there from Matt Doherty, and he had some interesting things to say. When we come back, we're going to recap Tony Pauline's comments. He had a lot to say. How do we feel about it? How do you feel out there, Panther Nation, about what you heard right there? This is the Wesson Walker Show, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ.